And welcome back to Originally Speaking with Dee Dotson and Tom Mom Maloney. Mom is the place where people got their first jobs, got their first taste of independence, hanging out with their school friends. And it's also the place where they bought their first pair of cool jeans. And while often derided by design critics, the mall in its heyday has been immortalized in many movies, including Mean Girl. With the rise in online economy, many have heralded the demise of these temples of commerce, but malls continue to reinvent themselves. Joining us today to talk about the cultural and design history of American malls is Alexandra Lang, an architecture and design critic and the author of the new book, Meet Me by the Fountain, An American History of the Mall. Alexandra, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So, Alexandra, let me just start by saying that this book is really not what I expected. When I saw the title, I thought it was about, yeah, shopping. And because you are a design critic, I thought it was possibly about, like, the architecture around malls. But it's a very deep and introspective book. So let's, let's talk about the book for just a moment, okay? So you call them all personal to begin with, which I do agree with. So what makes you call the mall personal? Well, it was really when I conceived of this idea to write about the mall and, and basically like kind of convince myself that the mall was really important and needed like a full dress history. I started talking to people about it. And every time I said, oh, I'm thinking about writing about the mall, people said, oh, let me tell you about my mall. Like everybody had a mall story. And I realized I had a mall story myself. And and that really led me to believe that it was even more important than I had originally thought because there aren't too many kinds of architecture out there that most people in America have experienced, that most people have, you know, kind of good and bad and like funny stories about. And so the mall just felt like it needed a book and it needed a place for people to concentrate those memories. Alexander, so when we talk about those memories, can we go way back and kind of get an, an early basis as to how the American Mall formed and how it started to kind of become part of our collective consciousness, uh, apart from strip malls or outlet malls and sort of this this Americana slash Americanized version of the mall? And, and where did that begin? Sure. I mean, and one of the reasons it made sense for me as a design historian to write about the mall is because the mall plays a really important part in the kind of post-war development of America and particularly of American suburbs. The father of the shopping mall is this guy called Victor Gruen, who was uh, a Jewish emigre who realized that in post-war America, we were building all of these new highways with federal funding. We were building all of these new cul-de-sac with single-family homes, also with mortgages supported by the federal government. But there wasn't a place in between those two things for people to gather. You know, traditionally, people had had downtown and Main Street, and the new suburbs didn't have that. So he wanted to create a place for people to go in this new highway landscape. And he had grown up in Vienna and he thought people needed spaces to, you know, kind of walk around and shop and go to a sidewalk cafe. And his answer was the mall. Right. And so you write in your book that he shares that the mall was intended to be sort of a community center beside the, the commerce part of, uh, of the mall, correct? Yeah, that's right. And a lot of the early malls had um, community spaces. Some of them had churches. Some of them would have city offices. And then the community space was also just the interior of the mall, the idea that here was a place you could take your kids no matter how bad the weather was, and they could run around and you could meet a friend and all of that. 
And so your 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 book uh, that you write, "Meet Me by the Fountain," you know, and you talk about community spaces. It feels like every mall, while having their own individual stories, still tells the same story. Um, and now it uh, it probably feels like a bygone era. Um, we actually came across your book via the article from New Republic uh, by Jillian Steinhauer, uh, writing about can the American Mall survive? And so, you know there. Every mall seems to have featured a fountain. It's got a food court, right? Uh, Some of them in their early days, I remember having arcades or like a hallway where you could go play games, Uh, all sorts of different stores, you know, the the quintessential classics that we think of when we shop at a mall and how excited we were when one of those stores finally arrived at our mall. Um, Can you talk with us about some of those different stories that you talk about in your book about malls and the different stories that they tell, whether it's the people who occupied them, the stores, the shoppers, or the the regions and the communities that they served? Yeah, there's definitely a template for the mall. And in fact, um, the Simon Brothers, who, you know, Simon Malls is still based in Indiana, were some of the first people to recognize that you could create this template with, you know, a department store at either end, boutiques in between, um, then adding a second story, adding a food court, adding arcades, etc. And they distributed that all across the USA. But yeah, there are different different parts of the mall really serve different parts of the community. You mentioned the hallway with the arcades and you know, by the late 70s, early 80s, malls had become this really important space for teenagers and places like arcades and also stores like Hot Topic and, you know, music stores uh, really catered to that demographic and helped make the mall a place where teens wanted to hang out. Whereas, um, you know, the department stores and some of the higher end boutiques outside the department stores probably catered more to the mothers, um, you know, doing practical school shopping at this time of year, but also doing, you know, shopping for events. So the mall was a big enough space to really accommodate all of these different interests in its heyday. But as you know, like the other thing that I discovered when I was researching the book was that the mall has changed. Like at a certain point, just having shopping wasn't really enough to keep people coming back and malls really turned towards entertainment. And the the biggest you know version of that is probably the Mall of America in Minnesota, which has a amusement park in the middle, but arcades, um, having a carousel in the mall and other things like that really catered to this idea that uh, you could have fun um, and spend your money on experiences rather than just on you know clothes or food at the mall. This is Originally Speaking, and uh, we're talking with the author of Meet Me by the Fountain, um, in which we discuss the history and maybe the future of the mall. And I should note, Alexander, that we we have a a very large mall, one of the largest malls in Indiana, uh, right around the corner from our station called South Lake Mall. And of course, throughout um, the Chicagoland area, uh, D, I know that uh, both you and I have frequented many a mall that has gone belly up, so to speak, or has has closed its doors and moved on elsewhere. What is the new face of the mall when it comes to um, the sort of Americanaism of it all? I mean, we all shop on Amazon now and get everything delivered at home and then return everything via the same way and, you know, get clothes back and forth that way. Um, I'm I'm reminded of the the closet in Cher's uh, house growing up in Clueless, 
and she's got a photo of herself and clicks on a button and she can see what she looks like in every single outfit. And now we have that on our apps, on our on our phones, and we've got our, our selfies uploaded onto different websites to see what we would look like with a different type of a hat or makeup or some sort of clothing in that regard where it really takes out the personal experience from the mall, right? So what does the mall look like now as we move forward and we we quite literally remove our physical selves from the mall? Yeah, no, that's a great point about Clueless, which I do talk about in the book, because yes, at, you know, at the point when that movie was being made, Cher has her digital closet, but she still goes to the mall to shop with her friends and kind of show off her outfit on the escalator, which is the, the scene that I talk about. Well, I mean, it's, I think the future of the mall is precisely in that um, kind of personal nature and in some of the frustrations that people have with online shopping, especially coming out of the pandemic, the percentage of people, you know, shopping online really jumped from about 15% to 30%. But already that percentage is going back down because people are really frustrated with having to buy, you know, three sizes of everything and returning things and all the cardboard in their basements. And they're realizing that there's actually something super convenient about going to the mall. Yes, you have to leave your house, but then you go to the dressing room and you just try on all those sizes and buy the ones that fit. You know, like sometimes the simpler, older technology is actually the one that works. But on top of that, I think that there are a lot of malls, um, you know, ones that are you know still alive, but maybe not doing so well, that are trying to turn themselves more towards experiences. Um, the new anchors for malls are less likely to be department stores and more likely to be grocery stores, especially kind of gourmet grocery stores like Whole Foods that also you can eat in, you can buy prepared foods. They're kind of an experience. And a lot of malls are also putting in more entertainment things like trampoline parks and go-kart races or, you know, big gyms that have climbing walls and are good for, you know, kids' birthday parties. So it's kind of a transformation of the mall that still keeps some of the core stores but replaces the department stores with things that are more experiential and that people need, you know, every week or every month. Great. So I opened our conversation by sharing that your book is not exactly what I thought. You know, it's not some fluff piece about, oh, the mall, the history of the mall, hanging out with friends, which malls do bring back so many great memories, hanging with your friends. I know I got my ears pierced for the first time at the mall. Tom's laughing at me. Didn't everybody get their ears pierced at that store, that pagoda kind of store? But, you know, lately we've seen on social media posts of young people behaving badly in malls. And I bring that up because, you know, I'm the mother of teens. I take my teens uh, to the mall quite often. That's just because I'm a, a helicopter mom. I like to be with them. But what I notice when I go to the mall, upon entry, you'll see signs that say if you're under a certain age, and I believe it's 18 at some malls and under 21 at other malls, that you must be escorted by an adult. And the reason that I bring this up is that in your book, you you speak about the code of conduct of malls. I, for one, did not necessarily realize that there was an actual written code of conduct for malls. So can we just talk about that for a moment? Sure, we can. Um, And it's interesting that you noticed it, you know, after reading my book, because I've heard that from so many people, that they don't realize that malls have codes of conduct, um, which specify many things. But they are often used to kind of police the behavior of teenagers. Um, you know, ma- initially, malls welcome teenagers with things like 
arcades, but over the years, a lot of the um, retailers became sort of suspicious or nervous about groups of teens being, you know, unattended or unaccompanied. And so a lot of those codes of conduct talk about, you know, how many teenagers can be in a group without an adult, or um, they have kind of a curfew after which teenagers can't be in the mall unaccompanied. Um, And I think I sort of understand where some of the retailers are coming from, like groups of teenagers aren't necessarily um, there to spend money. But on the other hand, you know, historically, the mall was seen as this kind of safe space that's in between, you know, the real city and, um, and offered teens a kind of independence uh, due to the passive surveillance of the store owners and the kind of interior space of the mall. So I think it's a real conflict. Like, how do we provide teenagers with a space in their towns where they can exert some independence and hang out with their friends while also not letting them get too rowdy and and not and let allowing both you know the teenagers and the adults to be safe um you know there's also another layer to this which has come up at at some malls which is that those these mall t- codes of conduct tend to be enforced more often against minority teens than against white teens so there is a certain amount of like prejudging happening, which is definitely not okay. And there have been lawsuits over that. Great. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that point up because as I've shared, I take my teens um, to the mall when they want to go to the mall. I am an African-American woman, the mother of African-American teens, and I am all too familiar with that sort of policing, if you mm-hmm. will, of both myself and my teens. And let's talk about that for a second, how they, the mall cops, if you will, how they sort of kind of police, I believe you frame it as the right kind of people. How did that develop over the years? Yeah, I mean, it, the the increased level of security of malls kind of developed uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, where malls started um, getting larger and not wanting to hire necessarily more physical mall cops. They started to have more closed caption cameras, um, you know, more of those you know, detectors at the entrance and exits to stores. And so the increasing technologization of security, if you will, um, led to kind of more false alarms. And um, I think, you know, kind of more assumptions um, and often wrongful assumptions about like who was going to be shoplifting and whether, um, you know, black and brown teenagers were more likely to be shoplifting. And one of the things I write about in the book is that there are all of these, you know, movies about teenagers in the mall, you know, shopping, showing off, but they tend to be white teenagers, whereas black shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or um, uh, Blackish have scenes where teens are wrongfully accused of shoplifting, you know, always by kind of the same, same like white mall cop. So it, this is like a real experience that a lot of um, African-American teens in, Amer- in the U.S. have had. And then it's been translated by these uh, TV writers and showrunners into episodes of shows. So this is a real problem. I mean, it's a real problem about assumptions um, and the greater policing of minorities everywhere in the U.S., and it turns up a lot in malls. We're talking with Alexandra Lang, author of Meet Me by the Fountain, uh, here on Regionally Speaking. Alexandra, um, it's funny, you make the comment about, you know, sort of the same white mall cop, and I I immediately think of Paul Blart, mall cop. Uh, There are two movies made about him. 
um, you know, starring as sort of this uh, bumbling buffoon of a, a mall cop that we all sort of think and remember. Of course, uh, movies like Mall Rats, uh, Mean Girls as well, um, you know, Clueless, as mentioned earlier, that all sort of uh, centralize around the mall as as it was in that time period, in that time frame. But going back to, to Paul Blart, um, and I should note that uh, one of our malls here as well um, has a, a local police department inside of it too as a station. And so do we see when we see the accusations of black teens in TV shows and movies like Fresh Prince and Blackish? Um, do we see the mall now sort of echoing uh, sort of what America is and what it's becoming in terms of, you talk about the digitalization of, um, not necessarily privacy, but of policing within the mall, uh, cameras in every corner and every nook and cranny where it's no longer a place to get away with some safe places or some safe spaces, whether it's a store or it's a, you know, a corner where, you know, you can just get a reprieve from somebody. Can we talk about that in terms of how the mall reflects the current state of America? Sure. I mean, I think, I think that the mall now has to deal with a more complex set of actors and a more diverse set of actors than it was originally designed for. Um, one of the things I talk about in the early chapters of the book is that when Victor Gruen was inventing the mall and a lot of the early malls were being built, they were in suburbs that were white. And they were white because of redlining. They were white because of homeowners associations. They were white because realtors, you know, steered black families to specific neighborhoods and white families to other neighborhoods. So the new malls were being built in places where the clientele was most likely to be white, um, white middle-class women and their children. Um, so over the years, obviously, the suburbs have diversified, you know, the American family has diversified. And so some of the rise in security and in kind of, you know, over-policing, especially of teenagers and malls, is a reflection of the change in the demographics of people that were going to malls and the demographics of the places around malls. And one of the most interesting trends I think we're seeing in malls now is that some of them are actually being revamped to reflect that diversity um, there are social scientists that are studying what are called ethnoburbs, which are suburbs that have um, really been transformed by immigration, um, both kind of internal U.S. immigration and external immigration. And malls, the malls are no longer serving a majority white population. There are Asian malls, there are Latinx malls, there are African malls. And I think this is really a positive thing because, like the the template of the mall that we were talking about earlier, it doesn't work for America now. People want different things, different foods, different clothes. And so, if the driving force and the kind of you know the ownership of the mall understands that they are living in a more diverse world, hopefully they can also you know not police people for being different because everyone at the mall is diverse and that's really the population that it is trying to attract rather than repel. Alexandra, we, uh, we got just a moment left, uh, before we let you go, but, um, for folks who have been listening to the conversation, want to get a copy of the book, uh, where can they get, uh, meet me by the fountain? You can really buy it at any major retailer. I know it's for sale at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, and hopefully at some independent bookstores near you. And I must say, the cover is uh, 
quintessential in terms of Americana with the early 1950s view of like an outdoor mall and uh, the lower corner almost feels like a mall right in your own backyard that you might see during the holidays with the twinkle of uh, white Christmas lights hanging down. Um, Really a a fascinating read and a terrific conversation here, Alexandra. Thank you so much for joining us here on Regionally Speaking and we will meet you by the fountain. Thank you. This is Regionally Speaking here on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. With the end of the year approaching, many people would rather be snowboarding, attending a holiday party, or planning what to wear to ring in the new year than work on their financial house. Who would blame them when 2023 brought several bank failures, inflation, a flat stock market, and talks of a recession? Nonetheless, financial advisors recommend that you take some time to work on your financial house before 2024. Northwest Indiana Financial Advisor Greg Hammer of Hammer Financial Services is here with us today to explain some of the money moves you should consider before the end of the year to help you start 2024 financially strong. So Greg, as always, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thanks for having me, Andy. Greg, so the holidays are full of fun activities and working on one's finances often takes a back seat. To encourage our listeners to take action, how can they make this process easier? Hi, Dee. I think the easiest way, and it works for me, is to to complete this task is to develop a simple financial checklist and just check off the items as you go and accomplish them. And that way it doesn't feel so overwhelming and you can kind of whittle away at it. So speaking of this checklist, so checklist item number one, insurance. This is a good place to start because you say that insurance is often overlooked. Can you explain? Yeah, it's true because uh, insurance is a necessary part of a solid financial plan. Not updating your insurance policies can lead to paying more than necessary or more importantly, not having adequate coverage should you need it, which could cause a, a lot of financial problems. Insurance is such an umbrella term. What specifically should listeners review? Well, depending on where you're at, Medicare, you know, if you're over age 65 or Medicare eligible, um, you need to make changes to Medicare, the prescription drug plan during open enrollment for the following year. So that enrollment ends December 7th. If you go beyond that, then you have to stay in your same prescription drug plan for the remainder of 2024. So you want to make sure that any changes in the types of medications you have, or more importantly, any changes in the plan that you have, it still makes sense to stay with who you are or whether you need to change it. And then, you know, of course, healthcare, as you know, typically is calendar year. So if you have a group health plan, um, you want to make sure that uh, you're reviewing with the benefits division. And generally, you have to elect you know, what plan you're going to go into every year. I know my wife and I just did ours. And then any questions in and around like long-term care, you know, 70% of people, as you know, turning age 65 will need long-term care. So people are surprised to learn that medical coverages like Medicare, they do not cover those types of needs, Uh, long-term care. So it's, it's something to consider. And then life insurance, you know, nowadays, Life insurance can be used in a variety of ways in planning, you know, from helping to pay for long-term care to leaving your children a legacy without a huge tax liability. So it's wise to talk to a professional who could help find a way to fit in your plan if it makes sense. Checklist item number two, max out retirement contributions for 2023. Now, I understand that there are a few deadlines here that can make it confusing. What are they? 
And one, it basically has to do with whether they're group plans or individual plans. So employee-sponsored plans, you know, like your 401ks, the ERISA plans, all contributions need to be put in by December 31st. That's your deadline. While non-employer plans, you know, individual plans, like IRAs, you have until April 15th where you could make a contribution even for the previous year. And you don't want to accidentally allocate those funds for 2024 and miss out on a 2023 break, uh, tax break. So if you're contributing after the first year for 2024, make sure it's getting classified for the year that you want it to. We're speaking with Greg Hammer, President and CEO of Hammer Financial Services in Shearville. So, Greg, we often hear that it's best to contribute the full amount allowed. So what is this year's contribution limits? So 401k owners under 50, the contribution amount is 22500 The catch-up for individuals over 50, you can contribute an additional 7500 for a total of uh, $30,000. Um, your traditional individual plans, your IRAs and Roth IRAs combined, total, you can contribute 6500 So it's not for each the traditional and the Roth. It's a combined total of 6500 And then the catch-up, if you're over 50, is an additional $1,000. Okay, Greg. Checklist item number three. Take RMDs by December 31st to avoid the penalty. Can you break that down? Yep. And this is super important because there's a lot of times no notification from a company or uh, it's just not information that is readily available or you see something as a reminder letter. So you have to take, if you're currently under the uh, the, the current uh, tax code, um, you don't start until age 73, but um, you have to take these required minimum distributions or you will get fined a 25% penalty by the IRS for the amount that you're supposed to take. It used to be 50, but the new SECURE Act recently reduced that to 25%, but obviously that's still a very, very hefty fine. So for example, if you were supposed to take 40,000 and you don't take the 40,000, you would incur a penalty of 10,000 and you would still be required to pay the taxes on the entirety of the 40000 So super important you get those done by the deadline. Greg, so some financial experts have said that RMDs have been extremely confusing on who has to take one. Can you explain who has to take one? Yes. So it is a lot to take in. And I, I briefly hinted at the fact that they raised the age again. It's been a moving target the last couple of years um, to age 73. So the important thing I always tell people, if you were taking RMDs or you were, you were required to take RMDs, you need to continue taking them. So never stop them once you start them. But starting this year, you have uh, till age 73, if you hadn't turned it yet moving forward, um, before you're required to take a distribution. Now, if you miss it, let's say you were going to turn 73 in uh, 2024, um, you missed 2024, you have until April of the following year, but you would be required to take two then in that following year. So there's uh, one group of people for individuals who have turned age 72 in 2023, you get an extra year. You get delayed one year, you have until age 73. And as you know, Dee, that doesn't mean that you can't take it out. You're just not going to be required to take it out. And uh, just a reminder, Dee, for Roth 401ks, they were required to take a minimum distribution, but thanks to Secure Act 2.0, they will no longer be required um, from a Roth 401k 
but you do have to complete this year if you were taking them. So RMDs from your Roth 401k before December 31st of this year if you were qualified, but then the new act will remove that requirement for years moving forward. Okay, continuing on this checklist, Greg, checklist item number four, Roth conversions. Why are financial advisors, including yourself, fans of Roth conversions? Well, you know, this is a fun topic for me, Dee. I'm a huge fan of Roth conversions because um, all of your traditional plans like your IRAs and pre-tax 401ks, those contributions were made with before tax dollars. So at some point when you take the money out, you'll still have to pay taxes. It'll be regular income. So your tax uh, will be based on the rates in the year that you withdraw those funds, but we don't know what those rates will be. But what we do know is the current federal tax rates are historically low. And there's a very good chance that they won't last. With an upcoming presidential election and the fact that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act are set to expire in 2025, we don't know exactly how that will affect taxes. But what that expiration means is without an act of Congress, we will revert back to the old tax code in 2026 which will mean higher tax rates. So looking at things to today, while you pay taxes up front during a conversion, this can often create substantial savings over one's lifetime, not just from a change of tax code, but it could reduce RMDs in the future, which reduce things like provisional income that could cause taxes on Social Security, could reduce the guidelines or exposure to IRMA, which would make Medicare potentially more expensive. So there's a lot of other things that conversions can do in the distribution phase that can create a lot of tax savings and benefits and reduce costs uh, to create a lot more efficiency over your lifetime. So you really need to sit with somebody that understands the value of those conversions and see where they might be beneficial for you to consider. All right, Greg. Before I let you go, the final item on your checklist, checklist item number five, Hoosiers are very charitable, including our listeners right here on Lakeshore Public Media. What should they know about charitable contributions? Yes, so with the the recent changes, people are confusing the uh, QCD um, age with the required minimum distribution age because they used to be one and the same. However, the QCD, which is that qualified charitable distribution that you hinted at, the age is still seven and a half. So Basically, what that means, if you have a charity, and under the current tax code, it's very difficult to itemize charitable contributions, you can have a distribution up to $100,000 go directly to a charity from your qualified plan, your IRA, and it's a, it's a, a complete deduction off your taxable income. It's a top-line deduction. So if you have a required minimum distribution, for example, that could also qualify for your RMD. So instead of, you know, let's say your RMDD was $10,000, you could have that 10000 be made to ABC Charity, um, and you would be able to remove that income from your tax return and make the contribution and reduce your taxable income from the year for the entirety of the contribution. So they're very effective tools for those that are age 70 and a half and older and um, have that discretionary luxury to, um, you know, not need those particular funds and have charitable intents. 
You know what, Greg, you know, I, I know I say this at the end of each of our conversations every month about you sharing such valuable information, but I really and truly mean that this month you shared so much information that will help all of our listeners, especially as we come to the end of 2023. So I thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking, helping all of our listening audience prepare for retirement. Oh, no problem, D. I enjoy doing it and I'm thankful that I'm able to provide some information. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for today. Thanks to our guests who joined us, and we'll be back with you next week with an all-new show.